in a series that we're calling Holy Endurance. We're walking really verse by verse through the letter of First Peter. And this, this book of Scripture is all about how to live as God's people in the world. In the introduction to the letter, uh, Peter refers to the group of believers he's writing to as elect exiles. They are God's chosen ones, his, his chosen people. They're, they're, they're people who belong to the kingdom of heaven. They're citizens of heaven, but they're living in the kingdom of man, in, in the world. And so as a result, they find themselves feeling like strangers. They don't fully fit in. They haven't completely assimilated into the world that they find themselves living in. And so they're, they're like exiles. These believers were, were facing exclusion at times. They were facing mistreatment because of their faith in Jesus. Because they had given their allegiance to Christ, they were being ostracized. They were being persecuted. And so the goal of this letter of 1 Peter is to encourage these believers to, to root them in the truth and to remind them of their identity in Christ. Peter's trying to help them navigate their way through life and to help them know what it is to live faithfully as God's people in the world. And so 1 Peter's a sort of field guide for the Christian. Last week, Pastor Brett took us through verses 13 to 21 of chapter 1, where the Apostle Peter calls us to live as God's holy people. To live as his holy ones. Peter reminds them of, of what God said in the Old Testament when he said, You shall be holy in all your conduct, for I am holy. But what Brett helped us to see is that the call to holiness is more of a promise than it is a threat. You shall be holy is a promise rooted in redemption, not a challenge that's contingent on your performance. And so Peter is reminding these believers of their identity and, and then calling them to live in light of that. And so in essence, what Peter was saying last week was, you've been redeemed, so live as redeemed people. Remember that you are children of God. Remember that you have been purchased with the precious blood of Christ and, and live in the holiness that you were redeemed for, right? And so that was, that was the word for us last week. And in our text this morning, Peter's going to, going to remind us of another critical truth. Not only that we've been redeemed as God's people, but that we've been born again. We've been given new birth. I wonder how that phrase hits you this morning. Admittedly, this term is a term that has all kinds of connotations attached to it. Right? In the 1960s, there was this movement called the Born Again Movement. And even celebrities such as Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan claimed to have been born again during this time. As time progressed, the, the term became a, a way to refer to devoutly spiritual people. Today, the phrase might even be used negatively to, to refer to someone who's like hyper-spiritual. Right? Some associate born again with an agenda. I, I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, born fine the first time, right? Leave me alone. Others might associate this phrase politically, using it as, as a way to refer to a voting segment. 
Sometimes born again is used to, to describe a certain brand of Christianity, the same way we might tag someone as charismatic or mainline or evangelical. Sometimes born again is used in that way. But, but what the Bible insists on is that there is no such thing as an unborn again Christian. That at the heart of Christianity is this notion of new birth. It's not a term for the hyper-spiritual. It's not a term for how someone votes or a way of describing a certain segment of Christians. it's, It's a reality that has been experienced by every true follower of Christ. See, other religions tend to emphasize a pathway into salvation, a a, a path into life. Maybe you have to adhere to certain religious laws or maybe you have to perform certain rituals or maybe it's about attaining enlightenment through meditation. That's how other religions tend to emphasize their faith. But what Christians emphasize is this experience of new birth. Jesus taught that we need more than external religious adherence. That we need more than moral performance to enter God's kingdom. He said, you must be born again. In other words, Christianity is, it's more than a path and it's more than a program. Christianity is a metamorphosis. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That word is literally metamorphosis. The, the, the picture there is of a caterpillar that has come out of the cocoon of butterfly. It's a fundamental life change. And so this morning I want to zero in on this idea of new birth that Peter mentions here in his letter as the foundational experience of the Christian. He says, because you've been born again, and then he describes these things that happen as a result. But don't miss what he's saying. We're going to unpack some of what accompanies the new birth, but don't miss fundamentally what Peter's saying. He's saying that being born again is the first cause, that it's at the bottom of it all, that that it's the core reality of the believer. And so the question for us this morning is, have you been born again? I want to try to spend our time this morning aiming to understand why we need a new birth, what it is, how it happens, and what it does. Why we need it, what it is, how it happens, and what it does. Let's first look at why we need it. We find it in verse 24. Peter says, all flesh is like grass, and its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers. Using this poetic imagery of grass and flowers, Peter reminds us that humanity is frail and perishable. That we are born in a state of fragility. We're, 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 like, we're like those annuals that we plant every spring that lives for a season and then dies when the frost comes. The Bible has different ways of talking about our frailty. The the prophet Job lamented, man born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. It's a verse for my teenagers. Job says, he springs up like a flower and withers away like a fleeting shadow he does not endure. Job says, life is a shadow. 
Psalm 103 verse 14 says, For he himself knows our frame and he is mindful that we are but dust. The Apostle James describes life as a vapor. It's like breath on a cold morning. You can see it for a mere moment and then it just evaporates and it's gone. In various ways, the scriptures testify to this reality that life is fleeting, that we are frail mortals. But the Bible not only teaches that we're mortal creatures, it also teaches that we're moral creatures and that we have acted immorally. And so to continue with this imagery of flowers, we're like a flower that's been plucked from the ground and, and, and separated from its, from its life source. We're, we're fading, withering flowers. And we need to be grafted back into a life-giving source. We, we need a rescue. Listen to how the Apostle Paul depicts this reality in Ephesians 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. According to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We all too previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclination of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Paul says, in our flesh, we're lost, we're corrupted, we're disobedient, and we're dead in our sins. And this is the natural course of life without divine intervention. That's why we need a new birth. Because left in your natural state, you will only ever and always make life about you. You will follow the course and the ways of this world, living in the indulgences of the flesh, and thereby incur a guilt worthy of God's judgment. This is what we all naturally do. If you don't believe this, like volunteer in kids' life. Kids will show you how naturally selfish we are. And there's a thousand different ways this looks and, and takes shape, right? But at the bottom of it all is this fundamental reality that all of it is rooted. Our lives are rooted in this selfish approach to life that is antithetical to God, that actually wars against his rule and his glory. And maybe you think to yourself, you know, I know plenty of nice people who aren't evil and aren't Christians. Maybe you're one of those people. You'd say, man, I'm not evil. I'm not blatantly evil. I'm not, I'm not mean. But see, even the nice things, even the good things that we do in our flesh, don't miss this. Even the good things we do in our flesh are always rooted in a preoccupation with self. We do them because we want other people to like us or to think highly of us or to prove ourselves. But never because we're serving out of a genuine freedom of love. Never because we love God and want to please him. And so this makes even the good things we do in our flesh evil. It makes even our best attempts at good works vain and empty. Which is, why, which is why the Bible describes us this way. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. If that's not a sentence for our current moment, I don't know what is. 
everyone has turned to his own way. We are all living in selfish, individualistic expression. My life, my rules, my way. And so the Bible concludes that there is none righteous, not even one. What every one of us needs is the kind of heart change that results in a true love for God that manifests in a genuine love for others. That's what we all need. That's that's what Peter's telling us here, that we are perishable and frail like dead grass, like a plucked flower. We need to be born again. That word born again in the original language, I'm going to try to get this right. It's a tongue twister. Anagenaniminoi. Woo! Say that five times fast. The root word here is ganao. And it means to bring forth or to give birth. Think of the word generate. Right? And the prefix is ana, which means again. And so when you combine those together, ana ganao, what, what you get is the idea of regenerate or born again. Right? But the way Peter conjugates this word is specific. He, he, he conjugates it as a past, par, past perfect, which means that it's something that happened in the past that has ongoing ramifications. And then Peter puts it in the passive voice to communicate that it's an action performed on the subject, not by the subject. Okay, so let me try to make this really plain. You see it in verse 23. You have been born again. Peter's saying this is something that happened And it's still true, and it happened to you, not by you, right? This all makes sense when we think about physical birth, okay? Birth is something that has happened for all of us in the past that has ongoing ramifications, right? And that child in the womb is not the active agent in that birth. The mother is, right? I'm about to get an amen, Brett. It's about to happen. Watch this. Moms do all of the hard work in giving birth. (laughs) The child is acted upon. She is the passive participant in the process. And yet that child's life is forever changed by it. Peter says that's the same thing with new birth. God's spirit is doing the work of regeneration. He's the active agent. That's why in verse three, Peter says, he, God, has given us new birth. And when he gives us this new birth, a new reality begins. Everything changes. Just as a child going from inside of the womb into the world, everything changes. That's why babies cry at childbirth. They're like, I liked it in there. It was warm and cozy, and everything's changed, right? And in the same way, when we are born again, everything changes. We go from darkness to light. We go from earthly to spiritual. We go from death to life. In in verse 23, Peter describes it as the imperishable seed of God entering our hearts. The picture here is of a seed being sown down into the ground in such a way that it produces life. To be born again is to have God's seed sown deep inside of you. The word of God enters your heart and brings out life. The prophet Ezekiel pictured it as God removing a heart of stone 
and replacing it with a soft heart, a heart of flesh that beats for the things of God, that loves God, that wants to please God, that wants to obey God. It's new affections and new desires as a result of God giving you a new heart. In John chapter 4, Jesus describes it this way to a Samaritan woman. He says, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Jesus pictures the new birth as as a geyser in the soul that gushes forth toward God. In different ways, what what the Bible is telling us is that we need something to happen in our hearts, that we need to experience an inner working of the Spirit that awakens new life in our souls. That's what we need. So here's the question that it begs. How does this happen? How does this happen? And very simply, what Peter says is that new birth happens through the gospel. Look at it. He says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is grass and all its glory like like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. New birth happens through the word of God. As God's message about Jesus is proclaimed, hearts are awakened to life. The apostle wrote in his letter to the Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. He goes on to write in chapter 10, so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. What Paul's saying is that the power of the gospel manifests itself in the proclamation of Jesus. As the good news of Jesus is heard and received, God's seed goes down in a heart and it powerfully brings forth new life. I think we need to camp out here for a second because this is somewhat mysterious, right? Jesus described it like the wind. He says, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, but you see it's a fact. So it is with everyone who's been born of the Spirit. Now, here's why this is mysterious. Because the same person could have heard the gospel hundreds of times. And it seemed to have had no impact. We know these people. Maybe you're one of these people. And then, all of a sudden, they hear the same message of Jesus. His life lived for you. His death in your place. His resurrection from the grave. The hope of eternal life through faith in him. You hear that message again and suddenly your heart is open to believe in this Jesus and your life is changed. You, you receive it, you repent of your sins, and you place your faith in Christ, and you become his disciples. And, and, and you don't understand why the first 317 times you heard it, there was no effect, and all of a sudden you heard it, and it's like everything changed. It's like the wind. It doesn't happen on a program. It can't be mechanized. This, this, by the way, is actually why 
as a church, we shy away from manipulative emotional altar calls. Because you can't manipulate or manufacture the work of the Holy Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. But as the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, God's spirit awakens dead hearts to life. That's what we believe. And so here's what we are committed to. We're going to preach Jesus every single week. Sometimes this seems to happen gradually, little, little by little. Often it's, it's, it's hard for a person to discern exactly when the lights got turned on. It's almost like the light of the gospel was on a dimmer that was slowly being bumped up. And the reality is that some point in that process, the spark of light came on. And that spark was the new birth. But it might be hard to know exactly when that was. Here's what's important. The light came on. And you love Jesus. And there's no more darkness. I think my favorite picture of this reality is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Where the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That means lost in their sins. He says, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is, is picturing. He's saying that the fundamental reality, the fundamental problem with people is that they're blind to the glory of Jesus. They don't see in the face of Jesus the glory of God. They don't see Jesus as beautiful. They haven't believed in him for who he is. He says the God of this world, that's Satan, he has blinded their eyes. There's a veil over their eyes to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Satan wants to keep us in the dark about Jesus. But, but Paul goes on and he says, but the same God who spoke the universe into existence, the same God who out of nothing, ex nihilo, said, let there be light, and there was light, has spoken into our hearts. And the lights came on. He said, let there be light, and he speaks light and life into a heart of darkness and awakens faith in his son, Jesus. And we believe. And we see Jesus for who he is. We see him in all of his beauty and in all of his glory. That's what happens in new birth. That's what it means to be born again. As Christ is proclaimed, God shines a light. He lifts the veil. Glory pierces through and everything changes. And this leads to the last thing, which is what it does. What's the result of new birth? Let me put it a different way. How do you know if you've been born again? Some of you are asking that question this morning. How do I know if I've truly been born again? Peter answers that question maybe a little bit differently than we might be led to think. I want you to notice two key characteristics of being born again in this passage. Peter describes it as new affections and a new love. First, he says there are new affections for Christ that come as a result of being born again. He says, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word 
so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. You ever been around a newborn when it's time to feed? Noah Carroll should say amen. They got a new one at home. Maybe you've been around Pastor Brett when it's time to eat tacos. It's similar. It's similar. When, when it's time to feed, when it's time to feed, newborns, they, they kind of start to flail. Like they start to like, they, they start doing these weird motions. And eventually they start to fuss and cry. Why? Because, because there is this innate craving in them for what they need. Babies crave milk. It is instinctual for survival, but it's also delightful to all of their senses. Nursing for a child is soothing. It's comforting. Dare I say, it's joyful for babies to be held tightly by their moms as they nurse. And in the same way, Peter is saying that those who have been born again have that same type of craving for Jesus. Crave this pure spiritual milk. That word spiritual is logikos. Some tie it directly to what Peter was talking about before, which is the eternal word of God. But I think it actually transcends specifically the written word. I think what it's talking about is the living word. Peter is saying, crave Christ. Crave the spiritual things of God. When we've been born again, there is this instinctual desire wrought by the Holy Spirit that produces satisfaction in Christ. There is joy in being with Jesus. How do you know you've been born again? Do you love him? Friends, this is so much more than religious duty. If you've you've truly been born again, then your faith transcends mere mental acknowledgement of theological premises. You've tasted the goodness. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. He says, that faith, which has only the assent of the understanding, is no better, than the, than, uh, no better faith than the devils have, for the devils have faith so far as it can be, with, can be without love. But he whose heart consents to Christ as a savior loves Christ. You want to know what the difference is between you and a demon? If you've been born again, demons believe all the same things we do. They don't love Jesus. The heart that has been born again loves Jesus because new birth gives us new affections for Christ. Number two, there's a new love for others. Look what Peter says. He says, you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart. Love one another constantly because you have been born again. And then he goes on at the beginning of chapter 2 and he says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice. Notice notice the horizontal nature of, of these commands. All deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Here's what Peter's saying. He's saying this new birth I'm talking about, it produces a new love for the body of Christ. You love the brethren. Again, Edwards is helpful. He says, the spirit of God is a spirit of love. And therefore, when the spirit of God enters the soul, love enters. 
God is love, and he who has God dwelling in him by his spirit will have love dwelling in him. The Apostle John puts it this way. He says, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is There is no such thing as a born-again Christian who doesn't love. And it's this new love that leads us to putting away these unloving behaviors. When Peter begins to say, put away malice and envy and slander, it's because he's saying, you've been born again. God's love has been poured into your soul. Peter's answer to the issue of Christian conduct is the new birth. You don't speak poorly of a sister in Christ. Why? Because you've been born again. You don't mistreat a brother in Christ. Why? Because you've been born from above. God's love has entered your soul. The love of Christ has metamorphosed you into a loving person. And so here's the question. Has this happened in your life? Have you truly been born again? In John 3, there's this man named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus with questions. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was a devout follower of Yahweh. He was a lifelong attender of the synagogue. This dude got all the stars in Sunday school, right? He came saying good things about Jesus. He was deeply moral and religious. And yet Jesus told him, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. We need more than Sunday school attendance and a good reputation. We need God's seed to enter our hearts and change us from the inside out. Maybe the Spirit of God is turning the lights on for you even at this moment. Would you believe in him? We'll close with John 1, 12 and 13. It says this, but to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, he gave the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Let's pray together.